Welcome back to Money Minutes for Doctors. Once again, I am your host, Christina McAteer. And on behalf of the Brown Emergency Medicine and the Brown Emergency Medicine blog, I welcome you to Money Minutes for Doctors, the financial podcast with a focus on financial wellness for our physicians. We once again welcome our featured guest, Ms. Catherine Vesnes. How are you today, Ms. Catherine? Oh, it's another great day, and I'm really happy to be with you, Christy. Wonderful. Well, you know we love you here, so thank you, thank you for giving us some of your time and your expertise. I see here the notes today are on the investment ladder. So really, it looks like giving us a broad overview for some things that we should be thinking about and some strategies going forward so that we can set ourselves up for success. Well stated. So what I'm finding is with a lot of doctors, they are just overwhelmed with the financial decisions out there. They just don't know where to start. Do they start paying down debt? Do they invest? They And sometimes they're so stymied with all of these opportunities out there, all these decisions to be made, that frankly, they do nothing. They just they're just too overwhelmed. They kind of go sit in a corner. So I'm hoping we can get them past that today and give them some strategies or some thought processes on how they can make good decisions with their finances. I love that. And it makes me chuckle because I was literally listening to a lecture yesterday that one of our senior residents gave. And he started off very humble saying, well, I'm not really an expert. And he kind of talked about a few topics and the one that he mentioned was his student loan debt. And it said something to the effect of, I owe over $500,000 in student loans, and I don't really know what to do about that. So today we're going to lecture on this topic. And I chuckled because, of course, it raises in my mind just how important this work is. But I also had a moment of reflection and just struck me with sadness that our physicians are saddled with this much debt and, as you point out, overwhelmed and feeling like they have a hard path forward? Well, I have never seen an impossible case. And I feel like that's my job is to help doctors through this jungle. You know, I've been through this jungle many times before. I've got a machete, I've cut a path, and I've got a light. So, you know, stick with me and we'll be able to get you through this jungle and you're going to be on the other side. You're going to feel great. All right. We're signing on for Team Catherine. <laughs> give us give us your first thoughts. Where do we start as we walk in through this jungle? Well, this is advice for whether you're um, a resident, a fellow, or maybe a very experienced attending that you're, you're looking at retirement. The first step always is do you have an adequate emergency fund? So for um, doctors, I like to think they need about three to five months worth of fixed expenses. So here's what I mean by fixed expenses. It's going to be rent. It's going to be mortgage. It's going to be car payments. Yes, I do put food in there, although food technically is a variable expense. Um, It is not going to be um, savings. It's not going to be trips to Aruba. It's not going to be clothing. It's not going to be buying new furniture. It is just fixed expenses that have to be paid. And the reason I say three to five months is I have only ever had one unemployed doctor. You know, we work with over 500 doctors from Hawaii to Cape Cod. I've only had one and she wanted to be unemployed. (laughs) And she was one of those doctors, like you mentioned, that had $500,000 in student debt. Plus she had credit card debt up the wazoo. And what I said to her was, girlfriend, you need a job. You've got to get a job. There's, you know, you can't just keep buying things on Amazon. And uh, sure enough, she had a job within six weeks. 
So for most of our clients, um, yeah, you could lose your job today. You're going to have another one in a month or two. It may not be in the perfect location, but you're going to have another job. So that's why I say three to five months worth of fixed expenses. Now, if I were counseling an attorney or, or um, maybe an engineer, I'd be telling them they needed more uh, in an emergency fund because if, if they lose their job and they've got some other crisis, it can take them longer to find a job. But that's one of the great things about being a doctor is there's pretty much a job for you on just about every corner. Well, that is amazing. And certainly with our aging population and the predicted physician shortage, hopefully that will be something that we don't have to worry about. What are some scenarios in which you find someone having to dip into their emergency funds? Really, really good question. So a lot of our doctors, particularly our doctors who are born um, outside the country, are supporting family members back in the old country. And I just had a very, it was a heartbreaking conversation with one of our clients recently whose father had some heart issues and the medical facilities in his home country weren't that great. But of course, he doesn't have U.S. medical insurance because he wasn't living here. So this doctor had to pony up with $200,000 to fly dad uh, to the States to have this very expensive heart surgery that they had to pay for in cash up front. And you can imagine that could devastate your emergency fund pretty quickly. So it was a very, very sad situation. So that might be one. Uh, maybe your children have got some sort of special needs. They've got some problems at school. Maybe they need to have some special training or that your public schools aren't going to work for them. They're going to need some other counseling. That kind of thing can also have you dipping into emergency funds. I don't like clients dipping into emergency funds to put the new deck on the house. <laughs> uh, something fun. Uh, you could dip into your emergency fund, though, to put the new roof on because it's leaking. So those are some of the things that, that can come up. Maybe you've had a car accident and your deductible is $5,000. You might need to dip into your emergency fund for the $5,000 before your uh, car insurance kicks in. Great. Well, thank you. That helps give a framework and a context so people can understand how to use these different accounts and funds. But I will say that when I see clients that have ongoing credit card debt, I just had a case recently that broke my heart. He is still having credit cards that he uh, debt that he incurred 20 years ago. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just horrible when you think about what that has cost him over the last 20 years. But when I see clients that have credit cards they cannot pay off every month, that tells me that they don't have an adequate emergency fund. Because obviously we'd be going to the emergency funds so that we didn't have to uh, depend on that very high interest debt. And would you go so far to potentially suggest someone dipping into their emergency fund to pay off? the high interest credit card debt and then work to rebuild the emergency fund thereafter? Sometimes, yes. So one of the ways we want to talk about this is let's talk about what debt should we pay off. Now, I'm uh, setting aside student debt here. Let's just talk for a minute about credit card debt or other debts that they may have. Typically, if you've got debt that it's above 5 to 6%, once again, with the exception if you're in public service loan forgiveness, I would have you uh, with a special debt plan to pay that off. Now, if you've got debt that's in the 2 or 3% range, even if that is a student debt, that is so low and it's so cheap, I'd say let's hang on to that. And you always have to look at the debt versus what can we do to invest. And just a refresher, um, if you go back in the U.S. stock market to the 1920s, 
the U.S. stock market has averaged about 9 to 10% per year. So if you've got 3% debt, I wouldn't be prepaying that debt because you get a difference there of at least 6%. And 6% a year on your investments is huge and obviously can make you very wealthy over time. So in that situation, I'd say hang on to the debt, pay it off over time. But if it's over 5 or 6%, let's look at a way to maybe restructure that into something that's lower or prepaying it, whatever is going to work best. And it seems like now's the time with low interest rates all around us, whether it be for a mortgage or a car or even maybe a personal loan, this might be prime time to restructure that debt and get yourself on a strategy to being debt free. Absolutely. And when it comes to credit card debt in particular, which it can be very, very high interest, uh, there's a number of places that give doctors unsecured loans, and they typically we use them to pay off these credit card debts. So we get the interest rate downs, we get the payments down, and we get a plan to get it paid off in time. Now, that works great for the doctor who's got the mindset of, I'm not going to be incurring expenses on my credit card that I can't pay off every month. Because I have had that happen with doctors who are like so relieved. We get them on this debt plan, we get the low interest loans, we get it paid off. And the next thing you know, they're running credit card debt again that they can't pay off every month. So you really need a change in habits over the long run in order for this to work. Excellent. And I suppose it probably is a very personal situation, but as you talk about, you're willing to help map out a strategy to become debt-free with your clients. Oh, absolutely. It's a big part of everything that we do. And granted, we've got a couple of clients that don't have debt. We skip that over. They don't need it. But I would say almost all of our clients need some sort of debt strategy. Well, it is the American way, right? Well, and it's not a good way because I think of a Dave Ramsey quote where he says, debt may be normal or it may be typical, but be weird. In other words, be that doctor that's living debt debt-free, even though all your colleagues are heavily in debt. And I really agree with that because to me, debt is like slavery. It's like, you know, involuntary servitude. And I want doctors to get out of that so they can live a, a life of freedom. Well, I love that because I do see the stress in the residents' faces or in my colleagues' faces or certainly in our own personal finances at times of of the stress of carrying that debt. And I agree, being able to live debt-free would be wonderful. And I just love the idea of the choices and the opportunities that would open up for one. Exactly. It's honestly, you just sleep better at night. (laughs) Forget the investment ladder. This podcast is about being weird. (laughs) Yes, it is. Exactly. Some doctors have not analyzed whether they should stay in public service loan forgiveness or whether they should refinance their student loans. And sometimes it's a big advantage to refinance them, particularly now when rates are low. That can open up more opportunities to be working for a for-profit organization that might pay you more. In the long run, you might be ahead. So just something you need to analyze, whether that makes sense for you. So you talk here about having a non-qualified account. Remind us again, Catherine, what those accounts are and why they're important to have in our portfolio. Right. Well, this is my third step. Remember, first, we want to get the emergency done. Second, we want to make sure we've got a plan to get out of debt. The third, then, is now we're ready to start investing. So a non-qualified account is just an account that does not qualify for special tax advantages. So it can be a brokerage account, 
Um, it could, it could all, uh, bank accounts are also considered to be non-qualified accounts. But in our context here, I'm thinking it's time to start moving into investing, and we only need to do that in a brokerage account. So that would be the next place I'd go. That would be step three. And when you talk about it being a liquid account, can you just again remind us of what that means and why that's important to have in our portfolio? Yeah, this is really huge. Liquid means you can access this money at any time. So technically, if you had investments there and you needed something, you could have them sell whatever those investments are, turn it into cash. And then within a day or two, you could have that money pushed into your checking accounts. So that's what I mean by liquid money. And typically, I think of these as like, they can be like backup emergency funds. So we have some money that we have in an emergency fund at a bank. And then we've got some other, this money is also liquid. Now we may be earmarking it for your children's education, or we may be earmarking it for retirement. But if we've got a crisis, we can use it if we need to. Great. I think you just read my mind because my next question would be, you're talking about having three to five months of savings. That does include these non-qualified accounts or no, that's in addition to these type of accounts? Well, it can include these. So very typically, let's say we've got a client that's that for them, three to five months is $75,000. I think that's a lot of money to have in the bank nowadays when you're getting maybe less than a percent return. It's not keeping up with inflation. So I might ask them, how much do you feel comfortable living in the bank? Maybe it's half, maybe it's 50000 whatever. That's fine. It's whatever they feel comfortable with. And the rest, very often, we put into a brokerage account that's mostly bonds. I call it the 25, 75% account. It's only 25% stocks. It's 75% bonds. The whole goal of that account, frankly, is just to do better than the bank. It's not going to knock it out of the park. It's not going to get you to retirement, but it's it's going to get you something better than the bank and hopefully keep up with inflation. And then we can use this money if we've been through our bank account. It's kind of like our fallback savings. Then we can use our 2575 for emergency funds if need be. Great. Well, thank you. That helps give a framework and a context so people can understand how to use these different accounts and funds to their life's advantage. And then you mentioned here the traditional retirement accounts, the 401ks, 403bs. Right. So step four, we've got some money in our brokerage accounts. We've got our emergency fund, some debts. Now let's go to our 401ks and 403bs. Now the very minimum we should be putting in there is what we call up to the match. So very typically, your employer is going to say, if you put in 3%, we're going to match that with another 3%. Or if you put in 4 we're going to match it with 6 or whatever that is. For sure, you want to put it up to the match. And if preferable, as you know, I'm a big believer in putting it in the Roth option, if, if your employer offers that. Most do nowadays, but it, not all. So I put it in there. And then depending upon your situation, how much extra funds you have, it's ideal if we can to maximize that. And this year, if you're under 50, that would mean putting in 19500 into those accounts. Excellent. And hopefully that's something that we can all meet. And it sounds like the sooner the better. So perhaps maybe in your first few years out of training, you may not be quite at that maximum amount, but that's something that you should strive to seek quite quickly and early on in your career path. Absolutely. And sometimes I say, just take the plunge. Have it set aside. You never see this money, really, right? Because it comes out of your paycheck and you get used to living on less. So I think that that's very important. Set it up as soon as you can. Just bite the bullet and go for it. And I know in our last podcast, we talked about the triple whammy, which 
again, <laughs> makes me quiver in my shoes here. But uh, you mentioned the possibility of increasing tax rates. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the Roth IRA with that potential future in mind. Right. Well, for sure, I'd be doing those Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks, 403bs now, um, at least up until the tax laws change. So yes, I was reading again today that there are plans for changing it. And I know they tell you it's only for clients making more than 400000 a year. And I'd love to believe that that was the case. But frankly, who trusts politicians anywhere, right? We, we know they're going to say whatever they want to get your vote. And then once they're in office, they're going to do whatever the heck they want to do. So right now, tax rates are still relatively low. That means it's cheaper to put that money after tax in a Roth IRA if you can. So I would do it now while, while you can. And just as an, uh, an aside, this may also be a time to consider Roth conversions. If you have an existing IRA that's never been taxed, we may want to think about converting that to a Roth IRA before they change the tax laws uh, because the tax bite will be lower. Perfect. And just talking about those changes, can you give us a little bit of a timeline as we sit here in the spring of 2021? Is that something we should aim to do in the next few months, six months, a year? What are your thoughts there? You know, I've heard different stories about how quickly Congress is going to change these tax laws. Some people believe that they're going to stay in place for this year. Um, You know, I'm sorry, I sound a little jaded. I just don't trust politicians. I apologize for those of you out there who may think I'm wrong. Because we've got the same party in the House, the Senate, and the White House, it's very rare that we have that trifecta. They can move legislation through literally lickety split in days if they wanted to. So I would suggest trying to do this in the next couple of months. Kind of keep your eyes on the news, and if it looks like this is going to pass, you're going to want to accelerate your plans. But think about doing it over the next couple months to be on the safer side. Perfect. And I see here, once again, you talk about the 401k and the importance of a match. So if you find yourself with an employer who doesn't match or potentially you want to put in money beyond the match, what are your thoughts there? Well, this is a tricky one because maybe you're a resident and fellow and they do offer you a 401k. It doesn't happen often, but it, it does happen occasionally. Or maybe you're in a an attending position, but you're only going to be there a couple of years. You have to look closely at what the vesting schedule is for the match. Now, what vesting means is your employer is giving you some money. That's the match portion. But their vesting schedule say, this isn't really yours, Christy, unless you've worked here two years or you've worked here five years. So it's possible that on paper it looks like, oh, they're putting money in. But if you're leaving within that two-year or five-year window, depending on what the situation is, they can claw all that back. It's not really your money. So in that situation, sometimes it doesn't make sense to put money in your 401k because you're not going to take advantage of the match. And maybe you need liquid money at this time. So it might be better in those cases not to put the money in the 401k and instead put it in bank accounts or investments and brokerage accounts. Sounds like a good plan. And just talking about vesting, what is the typical time frame that you would see in a physician contract? It's going to be on their retirement plans. They don't usually have it in the contracts, your employment contracts. Two years is not uncommon, um, but I think five is the max. I don't often see five, but two to four years is not at all unusual. And sometimes they have a schedule where you can invest over time. By that, I mean maybe at two years, you get to keep uh, half of what was your employer put in, but at four years, you would get to keep all of it. So the longer you stay, the 
higher the percentage of what you can keep of the match. Excellent. And gosh forbid, if you had to change jobs or leave that position before you were fully vested, what does that mean to the money you have in the account? Well, any money that you put in out of your own earnings is yours. They can't touch that. You can certainly take that with you, move it to another 401k or move that to an IRA. But if it's if the money hasn't vested, then you lose that. So that's an important thing to think about if you're switching jobs, because if you've got a large amount in your account that's not vested, but if you can wait a year or six months and then it is vested, it might make sense to postpone switching jobs until you that money has vested. So once again, it's something we should take a look at. It may or may not impact your decisions. I recently thought about how to frame this up. The reason we're saving now, people need to understand that. The reason we're saving and investing now is so you can spend it later. So it's not like it's gone forever. We want to just have that pot go bigger and bigger so you can enjoy spending it later. Perfect. Well, there you have it, folks. That is Catherine's thoughts on the investment ladder. We are going to start with our emergency fund. We're going to take control of the debt. We're going to invest and invest early on to maximize our compounding effect. And most often, we are going to be reviewing our financial strategy frequently to make sure we're on the right path for success. How's that for a summary, Catherine? Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. And listeners, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate it. 